Previously on If the Walls Could Talk. Mr. Rogan does not dispute that the hospital had illegal financial arrangements with three different doctors. Rogan cheated Dexia and cheated the hospital. Nothing went on in that hospital that he wasn't aware of. Peter Rogan, who had been indicted, left for Canada. And I guess he's come back. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. On the morning of June 18th, 2015, two million people flooded the streets of downtown Chicago. They were all there to celebrate the Blackhawks' Stanley Cup title and catch a glimpse of the team's victory parade as it snaked through the city. While a sea of red jerseys cheered and celebrated downtown, the former owner of Edgewater Hospital, Peter Rogan, caught nearly everyone off guard when he surrendered to federal marshals. Almost nine years earlier, Peter Rogan lost a $64 million civil judgment to the U.S. government for his part in Edgewater Hospital's medical fraud scheme. Then came a $124 million judgment to the hospital's creditor, Dexia Bank. But instead of paying, Peter fled to Canada. I knew that he went up there. Neil Holman was Peter's former lawyer. And there was some effort to bring him back, and I don't recall why it didn't work. Years of legal drama came to a sudden, unexpected end when he surrendered. The years of legal battles to bring Peter back to the States ended with his unexpected surrender. The next day, Peter was back in a Chicago courtroom. Mr. Rogan, welcome home. The judge scanned the documents before him and noticed Peter's lengthy absence. While you were away, the Blackhawks won three Stanley Cups. I'm aware of that, Your Honor. As you know, Canada is hockey crazy. The pleasantries ended there and it was back to business. The man described by former colleagues as always being well-dressed now appeared wearing a bright orange jumpsuit with metal restraints on his ankles. With the headline, From Penthouse to Big House, Peter Rogan's return finally made the front page news in Chicago. Charged with perjury and obstruction of justice, Peter Rogan faced up to 50 years in prison and a million dollar fine if convicted. He entered his plea. Not guilty, Your Honor. Then came the decision of whether Peter would be released on bond or remain incarcerated. Peter Rogan has not voluntarily paid a single dollar to the United States or Dexia in satisfaction of either judgment. Government lawyers labeled him a flight risk. He has demonstrated that he obeys the law when it's convenient and flouts the law when it suits him. He should be detained. Peter's attorney disagreed. You know, this wasn't some guy wandering around in the wilderness and putting up a tent and sleeping in it. Since Peter had no passport, he claimed it was wrong to label him a flight risk. He asked for Peter's release. The judge played it safe and ordered Peter to remain at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago while he awaited trial. Fans of Orange is the New Black might be familiar with this federal prison that sits right in Chicago's loop. Before author Piper Kerman wrote the book that became a Netflix sensation, she served the final few months of her sentence there. The 27-story prison sits in a triangular-shaped building and resembles an old computer punch card with its long, skinny windows. So what made Peter suddenly decide it was time to return? His lawyer never clearly identified the reason, but mentioned that helping his wife and mother-in-law, who was facing serious health issues, led Peter to consider waiving extradition. But if that were the case, you could argue that Peter was a wanted man who would be detained the moment he returned, rendering him somewhat useless to his family and mother-in-law. One of the charges Peter was facing was perjury, which is a fancy way of saying lying under oath. While the government was about to catch him lying yet again. 
During pretrial services, Peter told authorities that since 2006, he had no assets and that his income was limited to a monthly $800 check from Social Security. The government obtained Peter's leases from Canada and found that his monthly rent ranged from $4,000 to $5,000. His wife Judy said she also had no source of income other than Social Security. If that was true, how was Peter able to afford to live in Vancouver for so many years? Peter's Social Security checks would not cover the rent in that penthouse, so where was he getting his money? Further investigation revealed that Peter Rogan's rent checks in Canada originated from his sister. His sister was a retired school teacher who also claimed to live off Social Security and her pension. But somehow, she managed to wire nearly half a million dollars. That money went to pay Peter's landlord and attorneys in Canada, with a few thousand also going to Peter's wife and children. It all came from an account that listed Peter Rogan as an additional account holder. And the address associated with the account was Peter's former business office in Maryville, Indiana. Peter Rogan's parade of lies seemed to never end. A few miles north of Peter Rogan's jail cell, the long-awaited transformation of Edgewater Hospital was well underway. Architect William Roden Hornoff still remembers his first visit. The whole basement level was full of water. We started in January, so it's frozen. So we're walking on top of ice that's two feet thick. And I think the first floor also had a, a, a layer of ice to it. And the staff was creeped out. And the only way you could navigate through the building was with flashlights, so that's even scarier. And of course, some of the guys at the office believe in ghost stories. And so, you know, there's a whole thing that they're worried about it being haunted. And we're walking down a stair and there was a, some sort of like test dummy or something laying on the floor, at the bottom of the stair. And one of the ladies just yelled out, <laughs> oh, this is great, this is, this is great. Those gallons of stagnant water extended all the way to the basement of the parking garage. It's actually a huge structure, much bigger than what you saw above ground. Jeff Pavia lives near the hospital. It went below ground about 20 feet, and there were all kinds of sub-basements and storage and vaults and everything down there below the parking garage. Of course, then it was sitting in water for better than a dozen years after the pumps and all the electricity failed to the place. Neighbors described the fetid stench that hung over their streets as a wicked combination of rotten eggs, iron, and chloride. The neighbors were affected by the smell, and they saw brown water, I think, coming out of their taps, and they were frightened. As crews pumped out the water, Maureen Barron started asking questions. They were pumping the basement on a Sunday. I took out my phone, I started to take pictures, and the guy who was working there came over to me and he started grabbing at me and pushing me and trying to get my phone from me. He scared the hell out of me. Demolition of the parking garage and some surrounding buildings revealed something that caught the eyes of neighbors, like Stephen Lev. They left the foundation down there. They never broke through the foundation of the parking lot. They filled it with gravel, built the foundation, filled it with backfill, and then they built million-dollar houses above it. One of the urban explorers also noticed it. I actually saw them cover it up with dirt and just kind of built over it. So that connecting basement is still underground, and it's going to be hidden for years. Which I think is kind of cool, because not a lot of people are going to know that there's a basement that used to connect two hospital buildings still underground. 
With demolition came lots of dust, debris, and concern. The neighbors are rightfully complaining. Robert Dyer lives near the former hospital. And you have other neighbors who are like, oh, come on already. we got to get this thing torn down. At times, the job got shut down as the EPA investigated. This upset Alderman Pat O'Connor. Sometimes Alderman O'Connor would feel angry at us as a neighborhood. In an email, he blamed a few residents for the project's never-ending timeline. I did not like when he threw us under the bus claiming that progress on the building had stopped because of the neighborhood. That was not true. It had nothing to do with the neighborhood. Redevelopment included another round of luxury homes, and many were built on the site of the former Edgewater Hospital garage. And for the second time, controversy ensued when it came time to sell these homes. The same developer who built the first round of homes handled the second round. And once again, the developer hired the realty group affiliated with the alderman's wife. Enter Barbara O'Connor. She is the wife of the longtime neighborhood alderman, Pat O'Connor. She's the same woman who, a decade earlier, profited from the sale of homes built on the hospital's former parking lots. Oh, of course. They redeveloped that and she sold that. No conflict of interest there. Barbara's involvement wouldn't be illegal, but the Chicago Board of Ethics strongly advised her not to be involved with the project. So Barbara said she would not have anything to do with the marketing or selling of the new homes, and that any profit from the sales would go exclusively to her business partner. The duo usually split profits, she said, but for this project, she would be cut out of the deals. Barbara O'Connor declined to talk to us for this podcast and in an email said she had, quote, nothing to add. Back in 2015, she did talk to local media and told them, I am not making money on that project. If you look at my reputation, it's impeccable. I win awards because people know I'm honest and good. Even if she wasn't making money off the homes, her name and phone number was listed on at least one of the four sales signs. We posted a photo on the episode page of ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. As the summer of 2015 wore on, Peter Rogan wore down. I am pleading guilty. Appearing in court that September, he told Judge Harry Leinenweber that he had a change of heart. Peter pled guilty to one count of perjury for lying in an affidavit when he claimed he had no control over his trust account in the Bahamas. The charge is a federal felony. In his plea agreement with prosecutors, Peter Rogan admitted to creating a secret letter of wishes that spelled out his intentions for the money. It called for his friend and lawyer, Fred Cuppy, to distribute all of the assets. And you may recall that Fred Cuppy had already been sentenced to a year and a day in prison for perjury. Peter Rogan's long overdue day of reckoning had finally arrived. Just a note that no audio exists from the court trials covered in this episode, so voice actors will read from court transcripts. On the morning of October 14, 2015, Peter Rogan sat in Judge Weber's courtroom awaiting his sentence. And once again, the topic of conversation was sports. This time, everyone was talking about baseball. The Chicago Cubs had just beat the St. Louis Cardinals and were on their way to the National League Championship Series. All that stood in front of the Cubs were the New York Mets. You're probably well aware that they were swept in that series, but a year later, they finally ended their 108-year drought. Baseball talk turned to business. Judge Weber reviewed statements from Peter's family 
as well as impact statements from victims. This is all part of a procedure that happens before handing down a sentence. One of the victim impact statements came from attorney Bruce Paff. He filed on behalf of the Albert O'Caro estate. Albert was one of the patients who died from an unnecessary medical procedure by Dr. Cabrilla at Edgewater. He wanted to remind the judge of the wide-reaching effects of Peter's fraud scheme at Edgewater Hospital. He wrote, Mr. O'Caro's next of kin would like their great loss remembered when this court sentences Peter Rogan. Dexia Bank also filed a statement. Peter Rogan repeatedly has thwarted Dexia's collection efforts through a long-standing pattern of lies, obstruction, and deceit. In doing so, Rogan has been able to obscure his fraud and at the same time safeguard the fruits of his criminal activity. Just how much litigating did Dexia have to do to collect on their judgment against Peter? Dexia's lawyers attended 181 hearings before at least 10 different judges in three different countries, all to collect the money Peter Rogan was ordered to pay. Not to mention the millions of dollars Dexia had to spend in order to collect that money. But Peter's lawyer? shifted the focus. Mr. Rogan knows full well that the civil and bankruptcy proceedings over the last several years have put his family through a great deal of stress. In his sentencing memo, he claimed the 69-year-old Peter was remorseful, had a non-existent criminal history, and had been villainized in the press and in civil lawsuits. His children wrote letters that showed a different side of Peter. His daughter wrote, I know that my father will spend the rest of his life trying to make amends for what his choices have cost our family. She mentioned how her dad would toil relentlessly to rebuild some semblance of a retirement for him and her mother. A young doctor also shared his story about how Peter was the father he didn't have. In his letter, he explained that he was friends with Peter's oldest son and that the Rogans opened their hearts and home to him. Peter even gave him a job at Edgewater Hospital, and this helped him on his journey of becoming a physician. Peter's lawyer labeled him a dedicated father without any prior criminal history who accepted responsibility for his actions. There's a wealth of convincing reasons to expect that Peter Rogan has encountered the criminal justice system for the first and last time. He urged the court to sentence Peter to prison for one year and one day. Seated on the other side of the courtroom sat a group of six lawyers. They represented Dexia and the US government. One of those six was Assistant U.S. Attorney Andrew Boutros. Boutros joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2008 with the hopes of taking on tough and sophisticated cases. He got his wish with Peter Rogan, but Peter's sentencing would be his last. Boutros was moving on to a new job, but sentencing that great white whale named Peter Rogan was his last act as a federal prosecutor. Although his farewell party was still hours away, Andrew Boutros was about to uncork years of bottled-up emotions from playing Peter Rogan's tiresome game of Catch Me If You Can. Your Honor, this case has been a long and twisted case. And at the end of the day, we are here because Peter Rogan worships the golden calf. And that golden calf that he worships is money. He bows to it. He loves it. And he will do anything to protect it. Lie, cheat, conspire, commit fraud, commit contempt. Whatever it takes to protect his money, Peter Rogan has been willing to do it and has done it for more than a decade. The defendant not only faced a $64 million judgment, he faced an additional $124 million judgment obtained by Dexia Bank. We're talking about somewhere in the order of $188 million free interest. Peter was never charged criminally in the fraud scheme at Edgewater Hospital, but was facing perjury charges. And like Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, 
the United States and Dexia Bank went all over the world in search of Peter G. Rogan's money, and they found some of it, but not nearly as much as they would have found or should have found had Peter Rogan been truthful, honest, not deceptive, not contemptuous, not obstructionist, not perjurious, which he was all those and more for years. He admitted to lying about not having access to that trust that he set up in the Bahamas. Peter Rogan went and invoked that lie document, the side agreement, to say he didn't have any money anywhere and didn't control it and couldn't access it and couldn't get the documents and didn't know what was in there. That it was like manna falling from the heavens and the money that came out of this trust. He had no idea what this trust possibly was. The government and Dexia Bank were after that money to collect on the tens of millions of dollars that Peter owed. Peter Rogan has created an intangible tangled web that took many, 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 many years to untangle. And it took many more years to prosecute and that cost the taxpayers and Dexia millions in resources to pursue. The judge interrupted and asked just how much money the government had recovered. Boutros said that amount was somewhere between six and seven million dollars. And Dexia claimed that it had recovered about 20 million out of the 124 million Peter owed them. But Dexia had to spend nine million dollars to get that 20 million. What ounce of mitigation that counsel or that defense could have possibly hung their hat on was flushed down the toilet when the first thing he did was lie to pretrial services when he landed back in America. And what did we discover? This defendant had hundreds of thousands of dollars of money that he was laundering through his sister to pay for all of his luxurious expenses and living arrangements in Vancouver. But this defendant's parade of lies and obstructions and contempt doesn't end. This defendant caused the destruction of business records relating to Edgewater just weeks after receiving a federal grand jury subpoena. You tally that up, you have 67 boxes of God knows what in those records that this defendant had destroyed. That goes to his history and to the kind of man that he is. With references to Moby Dick, Sir Walter Scott, and even the Jeffersons, Andrew Boutros's impassioned speech spared no punches. His family talks about the house of whores that they lived in for all these years. That haunted house was created by that defendant. He could have made it all stop when he wanted. He could have chosen not to lie and not to hide his money. He could have come clean in this parade of horrors. This house of horrors could have all come to an end. Because of that worship of that money, he chose that lifestyle for himself and for his family. Boutros then reminded the court how Peter chose to hide out. This defendant did not show up to his son's wedding. Instead, he's living fat in Canada on the taxpayer's expense. He chose to drag this out. He can't come back to court and say, oh, don't punish me because I'm now old. This defendant thought he was above the law. He thought that through his money, he would win, that we would cave, and he would have his way. He was wrong. His will was confronted by our will and by our determination and by that of Dexia's. He is a convicted felon. He has admitted to his criminal conduct in two separate cases, and he stands now before your honor to await sentencing. This defendant deserves, he screams for maximum punishment. All these years later, justice has come. Edgewater Hospital's former CEO, Peter Rogan, sat and listened while a group of lawyers debated the amount of time he'd spend behind bars. The two sides had differing opinions on what was just punishment. Peter Rogan's lawyer argued for a year and a day, while federal prosecutor Andrew Boutros recommended the maximum term, 
Peter's lawyer took a moment to express his displeasure with the attitude within the courtroom. I get the tone from the government and especially from Dexia, and I'm not being critical because I somewhat understand it under the circumstances, but their tone is vindictiveness. They're, they're angry, you know, but, but that's not what the sentencing laws and rules say. I'd ask the court not to be vindictive, and I think Dexia and the government seem to think the court should be. Gabe Eisenberg was one of Dexia's lawyers who was in the courtroom that day. I'm not vindictive. Uh, I don't think anyone on our team is. I mean, you know, this is what litigators do when they're going after the opposing side of the case, uh, following the law and being uh, zealous advocates for our clients. Nothing personal here. Now, Your Honor, my client filed an affidavit that misled and was, upon inspection, false, and he admits that. He was definitely fighting to maintain assets for perhaps himself or perhaps his family, and he shouldn't have done that. And he's been through a lot. He stands before you a 69-year-old man who voluntarily came back from Canada knowing full well that he would have to face this case. Just to be clear, I'm not saying it's somebody else's fault, but under the circumstances, Judge, a just sentence in this case, I believe, Your Honor, would be a year to a year and a day. Mr. Rogan, do you wish to make a statement on your own behalf before I impose a sentence? Yes, I do, Your Honor. Your Honor, I accept responsibility for my false affidavit. In December of 2006, I signed an affidavit stating I did not, when I did have control over the trust or the distributions from the trust to the beneficiaries, contrary to what the affidavit said. I deeply regret having misled the court. I apologize to the court. I apologize to my family and anyone else that may have been affected. Peter was 69 at the time, and his lawyer asked to consider that when sentencing. But the judge wasn't biting. And it seems to me that he chose to drag it out, remaining in Canada until this year, so the prosecution could not proceed. Coincidentally, Judge Leinenweber also sentenced Peter's friend, Fred Cuppy. I was involved in Mr. Cuppy's case. I gave Mr. Cuppy a year and a day and Mr. Cuppy was way, way below in my judgment in what was done wrong in this case. It seems to me, based on what appears to have been laundering money through his sister and the contemptuous conduct which has been outlined in great detail in the government's case, indicates that specific deterrence is an important factor in this case. Based on all the sentencing factors, a 21-month sentence is appropriate in this case, and accordingly, the court enters a sentence of 21 months. Twenty-one months? That's it? Holy mother of God. You got to be kidding. I mean, I, I, it's reprehensible. There's just something not right about that. It should be for 20 years. I, I don't know. I don't understand the whole thing and how he evaded all of this. The price that he paid was so small given what he wrought. Yes, that's what happens. Money always wins. He got like a slap on the wrist, basically, and it cost him some dough. I mean, he fundamentally got away with what he did. He spent almost nothing in jail and what he has to give back to the government was this big compared with what he stole. 
hey, that's good business. That's son of a gun. Peter Rogan faced obstruction of justice and perjury charges. Together, they could have put him in prison for up to 50 years. But after pleading guilty to perjury, the government dropped the remaining charges. Even though his perjury charge came with a maximum penalty of five years in jail, Peter's agreement with prosecutors set the maximum penalty at 21 months. Even the judge noted that it worked in Peter's favor. Based on all the charges in this case, I think the agreement the government offered cabining the sentencing to 21 months is a very substantial, beneficial agreement to Mr. Rogan. You know, he was good at insulating himself. I mean, we talked about the other fellow, Roger Eman, who was the first one who got the FBI visit. When you have people like that who are out there, sometimes you're not. When you read what happened, it's just mind-boggling. 21 months is a long time for someone who was at the time 69 years old, but he did a lot of harm. I'm sorry, he didn't get a higher sentence. I think that sometimes with white collar crime investigations, you don't see as severe penalties in terms of length of incarceration for whatever reason, right? I mean, he did end up getting some time, which I think was important, but uh, ultimately it's, it's up to the court to decide. He paid a price. Was it big enough? I, you know, I, I used to worry about stuff like that when I was a prosecutor, but not now. Would I have liked to see a, a stiffer sentence? Of course, but it, it didn't happen. Dr. Maisel's grandchildren, Jim and Georgette Ginter, had varying points of view. I think I've gotten to the point where I know all I care to know at this point. Knowing anything more isn't going to change the outcome. I've gone through different stages of grief. First sadness, and then the anger. Knowing whether Peter Rogan is sitting in jail or if he paid a fine and got off isn't going to make me feel better or worse about the situation. I believe that there is some divine equalizer that at some point they will see things change, and maybe they have already. Everyone that I cared about that lost their jobs is in a good place now and, and is no worse for wear in the long run. I really wish I would have been allowed to give a victim statement. If I were there, I would have looked Rogan in the eye and said, you know what? You cheated us. You brought us down right with you when you cheated the system. You took all of us honest, hardworking employees, pulled the wool over our eyes, and took us down with you. I hope that he would say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for what we did to your hospital. Whether he feels that or not, I don't know. And I hope you're ashamed, and I hope you never forget who we are. With Peter Rogan now in jail, Edgewater Hospital's lengthy and tangled final chapter officially came to a close. Edgewater is truly a visionary hospital of excellence. It was the leader in medical care. 
but succumb to the economic pressures of the evolving healthcare system and sadly resorted to abusive criminal activity under new ownership, uh, was caught and just died. I think in some departments there would be the standard tales of joy and pain. But then I think if you get to the cardiology department, the emergency department, I think then you get the horror and the corruption. I don't think we're ever going to get the history and the celebration we get with a lot of Chicago hospitals. I think there's such an element of mystery to what happened there. I know the grandiose spirit of Dr. Maisel will always be first and foremost. Maisel was challenged by healthcare, and he met that challenge. I think they were a little ahead of their time in the scope of what they were trying to do. So I, I'd want them to remember it fondly. It was a family that started it, and it was, you know, a family that continued to work there, the Edgewater family. I can honestly tell you, my nursing staff was the best. They were the hardest working. They really put their patients first. That was the greatest medical staff to work with, compassionate, hardworking, dedicated to their patients. That's how I remember the hospital. I want people to remember Edgewater as a place that could have been great educational facility, healthcare facility, trend setting in healthcare, but it became a place where money was the most important thing and it just ate at it from the inside out. You know, I gotta be honest, it needs to be remembered the way it was. So if it isn't very kind, then that's what it needs to be. There seemed to be two Edgewater hospitals. There was quite a number of high-level professionals. And then there were a handful of incompetent doctors, I suppose there are at any hospital. And then there were the fraudsters like Cubria and Barnabas, all in the same hospital. And uh, you did feel bad for the many medical professionals who were extremely competent and proud of their hospital and thought they were providing great medical service to patients, but the whole thing was brought down by this blatant fraud. It was the embodiment of healthcare at its best and unfortunately at its worst. I don't want them to remember the bad things because there were so many good people there. So I want that to be the legacy. Unfortunately, it's gonna probably be the bad, but I would hope it's not. If the walls could talk, they would say never forget how the greed and incompetence destroyed such a good place. The necrotic sense of the people that brought it down started to just eat away at everything else. So it's what can happen if you're not careful. You know, if there was one thing that I wish I could have changed, it, it would have been taking away their fear of coming forward so that this wouldn't have been allowed to go on for so long. You're happy that you brought to justice the people that were committing these crimes, but having the hospital closed really sticks with you. I mean, my understanding is that a lot of the employees were able to get jobs at other area hospitals, but I think it still um, resonates with me that, that we were the cause of the hospital shutting down. It is sad to see a place that you worked at go under. 
but you know the nature way medicine is now you just unless you can bring in money and have people that know how to run a hospital that the hospital's that's not going to survive if you look at the whole medical staff of freshwater hospital there were just four or five bad apples they destroyed the reputation of that institution and this is what is going to be remembered the fraud scheme at Edgewater Hospital not only took multiple patients' lives and millions of dollars, but also the hospital's legacy. I don't think that the people of Chicago would remember Edgewater Hospital. Oh, that was a good institution. No. What they did, who was born there, and that's about it. such a saga, but it's really amazing that here we are, almost 20 years after it closed, finally wrapping it up, you know, after all this time. Those who live in the neighborhood were just happy to turn the page. Well, I was watching nurses' residents be torn down, uh, you know, about a year ago. This gentleman was kind of standing off a little bit, and he came up to me after a while and introduced himself and said he'd done his residency there. And he said it just broke his heart to see it being torn down. I would have liked to have seen it when it was at its peak. I think that the hospital, when it was run by its earlier operators, was a much more classy act. A lot of people have fond memories. Slowly it's coming to an end, but it's too bad that it didn't have a more glorious ending. There's an awful lot of people that moved through those halls and that hospital, and it became a big part of their life, or it was a formative part of their life, or they were born there, or maybe their parents or grandparents died there. You know, there's a lot of life events took place there. I think after it's redeveloped and after the park is up, people will be happy then, and maybe they'll they'll think more highly of, of Edgewater when it reopens, and, and at least Part of the original hospital will still be there. I can tell you that last August, when I went back to Chicago to visit my son and my two granddaughters, I, I told him, he said, Danny, let me stop by Eshwater Hospital. I want a break. So he took me to the hospital and everything was down except the professional building and the main building that is in Ashland Avenue. But the rest was almost completely demolished. So I took my break and I look at the hospital and I said, the hospital is gone. Whatever they are going to do there, houses or whatever, it should be done. And that's over, you know. I, I keep the hospital right here in, in, in my heart. When we are gone, and we are not too far away from that, but as long as the old employees are still alive, Edgewater Hospital Spirit lives.
I've got a brick. And the brick is here. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. The Edgewater Hospital story ended in 2015, but we're not quite finished. We know that some of the old hospital buildings are now apartments. But what about those people who orchestrated the fraud scheme that resulted in the hospital's collapse? In our next episode, we'll get you up to date on all the major players in the story. And you'll hear from Roger Eman. He's the man who many former Edgewater employees believe took the fall for Peter Rogan. We'll catch up with what he's doing today, and he'll share the one thing that could have changed the entire outcome at Edgewater Hospital. And those doctors who performed medically unnecessary procedures? Just wait until you hear what some of them are up to today. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from John Castoris read for Andrew Boutros, Clay Addy read for Peter Rogan's attorney, Phil Manicki read for Peter Rogan, Jason Taylor read for Judge Number One, Jim Foster read for Judge Leinenweber, Nikki Chaikin read for Dexia's lawyer, and Matt Spetzel read for the U.S. attorney. Sound effects from freesoundeffects.com and freesfx.co.uk. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Psychic Need by Chasms, Feels by Patrick Patricios, Division Street by The Otis Problem, The High Line by Cosmic, Beautiful Land by Joseph McDade, Next in Line by Varansky, and Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Balachenko and Lynn Publishing is used under license through Neosounds. You can access bonus content, behind-the-scenes stories, and sneak previews by supporting us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast this episode was written by todd gans if the walls could talk podcast is produced by buckletown productions llc copyright 2021 all rights reserved